Jesus, in verse 38, he explains to the disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. In the book of Luke, Luke would explain the same story and explain that Jesus is face first on the ground, and it says that he's sweating like drops of blood, which many would interpret to mean that he had a condition under severe stress where a human can actually sweat blood. And I want to know why was Jesus sweating blood? Was it because of the cross that was going to come? He was going to be beaten, flogged, his flesh ripped to pieces, given a cross that he has to lug up a hill. He was going to be pierced, nails driven through his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns placed on his head. He spit on, he's mocked, and he's hung there. Is that what he was worried about? Is that what would lead the Son of God to sweat to the point of blood? I don't think so. Here's why I say I don't think so. I want to tell you a few few stories of people that died in the early church, and their deaths were far more gruesome than the the crucifixion ever could have been. There were two young women in the early church. Their names were Perpetua and Felicitas, and they they were, Perpetua was a young mother, and Felicitas was a very young, probably in her early teens, slave girl. And they had come to Christ, and in Rome, every year for the emperor's birthday, he would have Christians arrested and placed in the Colosseum to be ripped to shreds by animals. And Felicitas, this young teenage girl who herself had just given birth to a child, was one of five other Christians for the emperor's birthday that was thrown into the Colosseum to be ripped alive in front of a crowd of thousands watching by a wild boar. And she was tossed and flailed all over the Colosseum. And even the most shocking part of the story is Felicitas stood in the Colosseum with her hair down and asked the guards watching if she could have a tie to put her hair up for she would not want anyone in the building to believe that this was a time of mourning for her. But to suffer for the sake of, the Christ, but for, to suffer for the sake of Christ was the greatest joy that she could be counted worthy of. I could tell you about Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna in the early church, and he was a faithful Christian for decades. And at the end of his life, he was arrested and put on trial to be put on a stake and burned alive. And everyone begged him, just recant of your faith right now. Just recant of it, and you can go free. And he said, with joy, my Savior has been faithful to me for 80 years. How could I be unfaithful to him now? And he was burned alive, and it was, it's told at least that he sang with joy the entire time. So here's my question. If the people of the church have been slaughtered for centuries in ways that make the crucifixion look like Sunday brunch, how is it that we could say that the champion of our faith was sweating blood before the cross? It had to be something else. It had to be something else that Jesus knew was coming on that cross. And I believe he mentions it three times in his prayer. Father, if it be your will, let this 
cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, if this, if anything else, if there's any other way that I don't have to drink the cup, let it pass from me. Jesus was sweating blood, not because of the crucifixion that was to come, but because of the cup, because of the cup. So my question is, what, what was in the cup? Why would Jesus be brought to the point of sweating blood because of what's in the cup? And here, throughout the course of this sermon, we'll be looking at a handful of different places in the scriptures. You can flip with me, or you can just listen, that's fine. But I first want to go to Psalm 75. In Psalm 75, here's what it says about the cup. In verse 2, it says, At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up the horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west or not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment." putting down one and lifting up another, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. To go down to the dregs means to chug every last drop, being forced down their neck. Let me give you one more. The scripture has about five or six times that it talks about the cup. But in Jeremiah 25, in Jeremiah 25, it says, verse 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. What was in the cup? It was the burning indignation of God's wrath and judgment towards sin. Now, when we hear that, you even hear Psalm 75, and you hear that, who, who is the cup reserved for? It's reserved for the wicked. And I think pretty much all the time, we're like, there's lots of wickedness in the world. It ain't here, though. Wicked is pretty extreme. It might be, again, some of that definition of what it means to be good. But I think that when we think about wickedness, I want you to look at the things that we probably don't typically understand, specifically the degree, the depth, and the direction of our sin. So first, the degree. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you, if you're taking notes, and if you're not, do it in your mind, I guess, but if you're taking notes, it's probably most helpful. I want you to make a, I want you to make a column, or two columns, one that says yes, and one that says no, with a line down the middle. So two different columns, one that says yes, and one that says no. Now, what I want to read for you, I'm going to give you just a couple of those Ten Commandments that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler. And all I want you to do, the only thing that I want you to do, is if that thing is something that, like, you always do, I want you to check yes. And if that thing is something that you do not always do, if it's not innate to what you, like, what's inside of you and what you feel, I want you to check no. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Yes would mean I have not made other gods besides Yahweh. No would mean I regularly find my heart making gods that are not 
him. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. I've never made anything to look. I've never made anything to be like God in my heart. There's never been something that I've worshipped or praised instead of God. Yes or no. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. I've never used God's name instead of cursing. And I've never said anything in vain when in praise. Like I've never, I've always been perfectly wholehearted in worship or I haven't. Remember to keep the Sabbath holy. I have always honored the rest that God has made for me to enjoy or I have put work and self-reliance at the top of my life all the time. Honor your father and mother. Next. You shall not murder. Jesus would add to this in the Sermon on the Mount and say, only say yes, I've never done that, if you've never been angry with anyone. And no would be, I have had murder in my heart regularly, meaning anger or hatred towards another. You shall not commit adultery. Yes, if I have never lusted or looked with sexual desire at another or lusted after another person or thing. No would be if in my heart I know it exists and pops up and looms constantly. You shall not steal. I've never once taken anything that is not mine or I have. You shall not lie. Next. Don't be jealous of other people. Next. Now, here's what you don't have to share your list. You don't have to talk about it. All I want you to do is silently look for a minute at your list. We do not imagine, and we very rarely think about the degree of our sin. We've gone 0 for 10. If we went through all of the, all of the law, we're 0 for a lot more than 10. We don't, we don't imagine the degree. What about the depth? What about the depth of our sin? I want to just, I want you to imagine for a second that I were to take, that I had a chip, like a, a miraculous chip that could be placed behind your ear and read all of your thoughts for this week. Every single one of your thoughts for this week. When you're walking on campus, when you get scheduled a homework assignment, when you fight with your roommates, when you're alone at night in your dorm room, all your thoughts for a week. And at the end of the week, let's do a month. At the end of the month, I want to take all of Salt Company. I want to rent a theater. I want to bring them all in. I want to get your grandma and your old neighbors. And I want to fly them all in from wherever they're from. And we're going to have a viewing party to just scroll through your thoughts for the month. And you get to sit on the stage and see all the people that you had thoughts about. And we get to scroll through them all. What does that do for you? I am assuming that it puts you in the fetal position in the corner of the room. Just like, please, no, anything but that. And the holy God of all creation has seen every thought you've ever thought. Every last one of them. We don't understand the degree or the depth of our sin. And lastly, we don't understand the direction. Last illustration. If I were to slap Tony in the face, we would, we'd have some issues. It wouldn't be great for our relationship, but we would likely get over it pretty quickly. If I were to slap the dean of Hamlin University for just working at a place spelled so horribly, we wouldn't get over it as easily. He'd probably press charges. If I were to attempt to slap 
whoever the governor of Minnesota is, we would get over it even less easily. I would probably get arrested, and if I tried to slap the President of the United States, I would probably be shot on sight. It is not relevant, the action that has taken place, but the, to whom the transgression is against that determines the punishment. So when you and I go 0 for 10, and all the depth of every thought that we've had against the holy God of all creation, what is the punishment that you and I deserve? What camp do we land in other than the wicked that deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath and his judgment? Someone will pay. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, Jesus says that the cup of God's wrath will be forced down the wicked nations to the dregs. Someone will pay, and it will be you who drinks the cup to its dregs, or Jesus 2,000 years ago. Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Do you know what his will was? His will that the plan would move forward and Jesus would go to the cross to drink the cup. Now, if we look at the second point, I want you to just flip. If you're still in Matthew 26, you can flip a couple pages over if you've got a big old study Bible or one page if you don't to Matthew chapter 27. The will of the Father was settled. And you need to know that in the garden, Jesus was not debating or contemplating disobeying the will of God. He was merely clarifying, Father, is this really your will? Because he knew what the cup really meant. And we talk about the victory that happens on Calvary, on the cross. But the battle happened at Gethsemane. Where Jesus decided, yes, this is the will of the Father. I will go to the cross and I will drink the cup of judgment that is owed for the people. And so he goes to the cross. And here's what I want to read for you. Start in chapter 27, verse 45. What does it mean that payment was made? Somebody had to pay on the cross. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Middle of the day, darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What did it mean on the cross? Jesus was forsaken and abandoned. He paid for sin in the flesh. The whole place went dark, and Jesus cried, My God, my God, why, are you for, why have you forsaken me? He cries out, because on the cross, Jesus was left. He was abandoned. He paid for sin. And when I say that it's either you who pays for it or him, it's not just this 
cup of judgment. It's abandonment, forsakenness. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. Imagine this. That you and I are, just imagine you're at your house. And you look out the window. And off in the distance where you typically see the horizon or whatever you typically see when you look out your window, like way off in the distance, you see a massive structure and you can't really tell what it is. But it looks like, like you look and it just looks like it never ends in all directions. Like it's just heading that way. It's heading that way. You're like, how tall is it? And so you got to check it out. You're like, I've never seen anything like this. And so you get in your car and you're driving and as you get closer and closer and closer. You're just driving for miles, getting closer to this thing, to this thing, and everybody's driving to figure out what is this. And as you get closer, you realize that it's a massive wall. It's an enormous wall that you can't figure out what's on the other side of it. But the closer you get, it looks miles high, miles and miles and miles. And as you get up to the wall, you look right, you look left, and you, you're like. There's no end to it. Like it just keeps going and going and going and going. And you look on the news and there's satellite footage that shows that behind that wall is billions and billions of gallons of water filled to the top. It's not a wall, but it's a dam. And right there, when you stand at the dam and you're looking at it, you hear the first crack at the top of the dam. And you watch it crack all the way down to the bottom. And you turn around and you run to your car. You sprint. But guess what? This thing is miles high and miles wide. Which means you could run as fast as you want. You can drive as far as you'd like. But there is no escape. The dam is going to burst. The water is going to come crushing out and demolish everything in sight, including you. You're going to die. And you stand there and watch the dam break and the water come rushing out. And right before it hits you, the ground opens up and swallows every last drop of it to where not even an ounce of water gets your socks wet. That's what it means that Jesus drank the cup of God's judgment. As he drank it to the dregs, he turned the cup over and said, It is finished. It's finished. He drank the cup. He took the cross. And either you will drink the cup and you will be abandoned and you will perish or he will do it for you thousands of years ago. Now here's the last thing I want to show you. What did it mean that he paid like someone had to pay? Look what happened as Jesus yielded up his spirit and he drank the cup. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. I'm going to stop there and here's what we're going to do. I want to take you on a little bit of a Bible study here to understand the significance of this curtain splitting. The significance for you and the significance for what it means that someone had to pay. Here's the first place I want to start. Go in your Bibles to Genesis 3. If you're, like, if, if you're not great at flipping around, this one's easy. Just go to page 1 and flip to like page 3. Genesis chapter 3. 
At the end, so in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world because Adam and Eve disobey God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it, after they've sinned, if you look in verse 23, therefore the Lord God, oh wait for a minute, let the pages, pages have settled. Therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam and Eve, out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve had sinned. And instead of them dying, God covers them with animal skins, which implies that it seems as though someone else can die to keep them alive. Something else can die to keep them alive. And they're excommunicated from the garden. And what's placed on the east is these cherubim, these like angelic creatures that are holding a flaming sword. What does that imply? That implies that if Adam and Eve were to come back to the tree of life, to the presence of God, to joy and endless hope and endless goodness in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, enjoying the tree of life, if they're to come back through there, the flaming sword would fall on them and kill them. Now I want you to go to Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26. Verse 31. And it says, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. This is talking about the design of the temple. The temple, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt with the people, was designed to look, do you know like what it was designed to look like? A garden. And to the east, where you could enter into the Holy of Holies, there was a veil. And do you know what was woven into the veil? Cherubim. Implying that to enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, just as it was in the Garden of Eden, one must die to enter in. There's the flaming sword that will fall on one, and once a year, someone would enter into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Because what needed to happen is that the sword would fall on one to keep the people alive. And here's what happened when Jesus died and the veil tore into from top to bottom is that that flaming sword guarding the presence of God fell on him. The death that needed to happen to invite you and I back into the Garden of Eden, back into the Tree of Life, back into the presence of God, the cherubim and the sword guarding it fell on Jesus. There is no longer cherubim protecting the presence of God. There's no longer a barrier between you and I and God because that flaming sword fell on the God-man who drank the cup on the cross. 
And here's how I want to end it, in Revelation chapter 22. Go to Revelation chapter 22. Again, not a tough one to find because it's literally the last page. Literally the end. And I want to show you just the, the beauty of what it means that Jesus paid for you if you've trusted in him. He took the cup of God's judgment. He took the cross and was abandoned so that you don't have to be. And the flaming sword of the cherubim fell on him and tore the veil wide open so the presence of God is available for all who would trust in Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. So this is new heavens, new earth, God's people with him on earth. Everything's been made new. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Do you see what Revelation 22 is? It's a great cosmic garden of Eden with the tree of life and the presence of God and the Lamb in eternity with God's people dwelling with him forever. And do you know what's not there? Cherubim with a flaming sword. What does it mean that Jesus paid it all? That someone had to pay and Jesus paid it. He drank the cup of judgment for you. He took abandonment, forsakenness, for you so you don't have to and he took the flaming sword and the curtain was torn so that you and I can enjoy the presence of God now and forevermore at the very beginning I told you how we were going to end tonight I want the band's going to play here for one minute I want you to take one minute of silence and think about one thing someone will pay someone will pay for our wickedness and it is either Jesus Christ drinking the cup of judgment on the cross, tearing the curtain, or all those things will be left to you. The choice is yours.